0: To uh, join me in a word of prayer, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive into his words, um, beginning uh, in verse 14. Uh, actually, beginning in verse uh, verse 10. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, may Your word stand above all of our words. May the declaration of Your truth be heard. As we speak your word, as we discuss and engage over the decades and centuries with the words you inspired through your Apostle John, may we know Jesus better and in knowing him better be drawn closer to you. May your spirit guide and speak. May we hear his correction and his encouragement equally clearly. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's begin with John chapter uh, 1 and verse 10. Speaking of the word, now now keep in mind that up until this point, John has not said who he's talking about. He's described the word and talked about um, uh, all things were made through him and the wit, he's called him the light, the true light. But in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And that's one of John's triplets. He loves to say things in threes. Um, Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or better, "the, the power or authority to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, there's another triplet, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. But from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So John finally makes it clear who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And he draws a line um, right down, uh, not down the middle, but definitely down through those who encounter Jesus. And he puts it this way. There are some who hear. There are some who know. There are some who receive. And there are some who do not. Now, most of the time when people read this text, they tend to think of this in terms of uh, the Christian-y people and the not Christian-y people. Right? So, we kind of look at it and we go, okay, so he's describing believers and unbelievers. And they're very clear line. People who are in the church and out of the church. But if you actually read a lot of what John writes in his gospel, 1st 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, all too often John is not dealing with the opposition, the people opposed to Christ outside of the church. He's often dealing with those who are inside the church. He's talking about There are people who can uh, look like Christians and yet there is something different about them and it's all about their relationship with Jesus. Um, And and I'm going to hit some of these these moments, but this is one of John's key themes, is discerning who we should be listening to, who should be speaking truth into our lives uh, from among what we would broadly call the church Christianity. Um, And so I want to, I want to take some time and just really, really dig into what he's saying. In verse 10, he says he was in the world. Now, John is making a very clear statement that Jesus was not some kind of spirit being that kind of had a, a fake body that people could interact with, but wasn't really a, a part of this world. Jesus was entirely a part of this world. He was, his body was made of the same stuff that our bodies are made of. His body did the things that our bodies do, um, all of the functionality uh, about Jesus, if, if it was the same. He had a digestive tract. He had a heart system. He had a heart and lungs. He had a brain. He was of this world, and yet the world was made by him or through him, and yet the world did not know him. And when he's talking about the world, he's not just not just talking about the physical thing, but he's also talking about humanity. He's talking about how human beings, Jesus was among them, and yet he was uh, more than them. He was the one who created them. And yet people could not recognize in him the creator. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Those that should have understood did not understand. Those that should have accepted the glory of who he was could not see it. They and we could go through the book of John and talk about all of the responses. There, there's those such as Nicodemus when he first comes to Jesus in John chapter 3 who sees only a good teacher. There's the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 who sees only a Jewish man at first. There's a, there are those in chapter 4, there are those that only see Jesus as a miracle worker. Jesus says, what, how many signs do I have to do for you people to understand? There were those who saw Jesus only as a lawbreaker. He was a guy who healed people. How dare he heal people on Sabbath? Doesn't he know we're not supposed to do stuff? What is he thinking, caring more about people than rules? There are those that just saw him as a provider. If we follow Jesus, he's going to take care of all our sicknesses and he's going to give us bread. And Isn't that what we really want? And Jesus challenges those people with all kinds of really really user friendly statements like unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you you don't understand that was you know his marketing team really needed to work on that one some people only saw a man they just said oh he's just uh the son of joseph he's just a he's just that carpenter's son from galilee some people only saw a messiah oh he's the one who's going to lead us against the Romans. He's the one who's going to fix all of our problems. He's the one who's, he's the descendant of David. He's going to be our king. And that's all that they could see. Then there were some who only saw a friend. Oh, Jesus, don't do these things. You know, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. And, and what do the disciples do when he starts telling them he's going he's to be turned over and tried and beaten? They go, no, 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 no. I can't possibly be the way this works you're our friend we we love you we don't want that to happen to you and there were those who saw jesus only as an enemy everything he did was wrong everything he did destabilized the the world that they had built and they needed to get rid of him at one point the high priest says it's better that one man die than the nation descend into chaos he goes you know it's you know we just we got to make choices about this And John makes it clear that not everybody, even not even most of everybody who encounters Jesus really is ready to receive him. Now, what do we mean by receive him? Now, I grew up in the church. I was a pastor's kid, um, and uh, I'm actually on my grandmother's side. If you include my grandfather, who was ordained late in life, and then you go back on my grandmother's side, I'm actually the sixth generation ordained minister in my family. All right. You go, ooh, I don't even know the names of those guys, so it doesn't really matter. Um, I was like, I, I don't know. All I know is I'm very loosely – I'm actually more proud of the fact that I'm extremely, extremely distantly related to both Eddie Van Halen and Rocky Balboa or uh, Sylvester Stallone than I am about those guys because I don't know their names. I've never I've never met them or anything. I do know that one of my great, great, great something grandfathers um, was a circuit riding preacher in New Jersey. Um, that sounds really – not impressive. Except, remember that New Jersey was once inhabited by Indians. It makes it better. Um, but but he was he was a circuit rider preacher, and actually wound up that the de- the church that my dad started in New Jersey in 1977 was actually on land that he owned, which was pretty cool. Um, but I don't know the guy's name. Uh, but anyway, uh, I grew up I grew up in church. I grew up to going to church on Sunday school, Sunday morning worship service, uh, taking a nap in the afternoon, going back for more punishment on Sunday night. Then maybe going to another church after our church service was done because my dad's friends were all pastors and they were even more long-winded than he was. Then often I would have a youth group or something or a revival meeting and then we had Wednesday night prayer meeting and we had to sit there and it was an hour and people praying and you played things like prayer bingo. This is something that little kids used to play. I I trust no one's ever done this, but we used to do this as, as a preacher's kid and deacon's kids. Never trust the deacon's kids. They're worse than the preacher's kids all right but the um we used to listen to the guys pray and check off like how many times the guy said he's going to say amen 75 times he's going to say dear jesus 14 times you know we're like making bets on it we got like a board and and I, i wish i was making this up but we actually did it we would write it on paper and then my dad every once in a while would look up and see us doing it and you got the eye that said you sir are in trouble when this is over quick hide it dash everything don't all right anyway uh I grew up in a, I grew up in the church and and so I grew up in the evangelical church I grew up in the in the 80s and as I was growing up I had Sunday school teachers who were always telling me this thing. They kept saying to me, they're like, um, and I was little I was little when I became a Christian, like six, seven, five, six, seven years old. I'm not exactly sure how old I was when I made my first profession of faith. But I, ha- I remember distinctly people say, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to receive Jesus into your heart. That's a weird image to be giving to a four or five-year-old kid because I knew where my heart was, and I had a lot of questions about how Jesus got in there. And whether Jesus was really that small, and uh, and and whether food accidentally fell on him when he was in... I, I had a lot of serious questions that I asked in Sunday school because I didn't have a filter as a kid. Some would say I still don't. Um, and I had a lot of these questions. I said, well, when are you going to ask Jesus into your heart and all these things? And, and then when I got older, my dad explained to me, he says, well, it's about receiving Jesus. Well, that doesn't make any more sense, really. Uh, to us right i mean what does it mean to receive another person like how does that work um it was only when i got older that i came to understand that what it meant um is kind of in the sense of the way we use receive now like a receiving line at a wedding the idea that you welcome welcome him in it's not it's not that you know it's like it's like ah jesus is being ups and i have to be there to receive him that's not what it is, but rather that as he comes and speaks to us, now John actually uses this illustration quite a bit. Um, In the book of Revelation, he talks about Jesus knocking on a door and those who open the door. It's talking about receiving him as he comes to us and presents himself to us. Do we receive him? Do we open the door and let him into our lives? And there were a lot of people that were not willing to receive Jesus into their life because the house was full. Their their setup was was full. There was no room for Jesus in their life. They were going to have to squeeze him into They were going to have to get a folding chair from downstairs and squeeze him in the corner and split the the food a little bit. Nobody was going to be happy. There's no room for you, Jesus. There's no room for you to come to this party. Jesus says, to those who do receive him. To all, in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave thee, and I, I mentioned this when I was reading through, uh, this translation in the English Standard Version, the right is not really the greatest translation. The Greek word is ekousia. All right? And ekousia means power that is given from a higher power. When, when an ambassador is sent out from a ruler, he is giving ecusia. He's given authority to act in the name. He is given the, the, the power of the one who sends him. And so what this really means is that when, uh, when we read this, is whoever has received him, to them he has given them the power or the right to become the children of God. Um, the imagery that John is relying upon is very common in Greco Roman law. And it was this, and we mentioned this in a Bible study a couple weeks ago, for those of you that sound a little familiar. In the Roman world, just because you fathered a child did not mean you acknowledged that child. You were allowed under Roman law to have children with as many women as you wanted to have children with, including other men's wives. There was no punishment under Roman law for that. You could just have kids everywhere, and women could have kids with whatever father they wanted to. Marriage was strictly a legal contract between two people for the sharing of assets. It had nothing to do with raising children or anything. That was Roman law. To the Jews, this was absolutely abhorrent because this is absolutely abhorrent. But it was free. It was basically a free-for-all. And so as a result, you had kids all over the place. And God, th- th- it sounds like I'm making this up, but I'm really not. Roman men would just name their daughters with numbers. One of the most, one of the more common names for women was Sixtus, which just means the sixth daughter, because there's no reason to learn their names. You're just going to marry them off anyway, and he didn't care about that. And sons would get all kinds of crazy names until the moment that the father would choose to claim you as his child. Now, a moral upstanding father would claim his children immediately when they were born. He would Give them a name. That, by the way, is the root of why uh, people are given names in baptisms and christenings in, mo- in a lot of Christian denominations. That comes from Roman law. It's the acknowledgment that this is, yes, my child, and here's the name that I'm giving that child. Um, that, that's where it comes from. It's, it's 2,000 years old, uh, that idea. Now, it got transported into the church during the Middle Ages. I'm not going to get into all the history of that. But that was the basic idea. That was what was going on. So to give the authority to become the children of God was for the father to say, you are my son. And that gave then the son the ability and the power and the right to say, I, you are my father. So you see the power that John is charging this with. Those that receive Jesus... Those who receive him as who he is, they are given the ability to be the children of God. Now, what does that mean? To all who receive him, believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, this is not something you're born into. You cannot be born into Christianity. You cannot be baptized into Christianity. You must receive Jesus Christ in order to become a Christian. And you say, well, what 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 makes me a Christian? Me receiving Jesus or Jesus giving me the ability to, to be a child of God? And the answer is yes. Don't try to sit there and go, which one comes first? Ask that question of God when, when you're in eternity with him. Because it doesn't, all we need to know is that I act to receive Christ, and in my action, God makes me a child. And and it's like, well, then isn't it up to me to make that decision? And the answer is no and yes. And isn't it God who saves people and it has nothing to do with what I do? And the answer is yes and no. They work together in a synergy. They come together. It is it is my will and God's will joined in a moment, in an eternal moment, a sacred now when God is at work. The word became flesh in verse 14. He's going to reiterate his statement about he came to his own. Right? So in verse 10, he says he was in the world in the world. In verse 14, he says the word became flesh. It's the same thing. And, and he was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. He was in the world. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, now who is he talking about when he says we? He's talking about those who have received him. Those who have be, been given the power to become the sons of God. We have seen his glory. What is glory? comes from the word glow glory is something we perceive but we don't necessarily understand it is a a deeper reality about jesus that maybe doesn't fit with what we think and yet is extraordinarily true i i've mentioned before i'm i i proudly that's the wrong word But openly, that might be a better word, um, openly tell people, I am an atheist who cannot get past Jesus. I would like nothing better than to believe there is no God. I honestly would. It would make my life a lot easier if all I had to worry about was the needs of the moment. And then when I die, it's over. That would make that would make responsibility a lot easier to handle. It would make making making my choices. It would be entirely up to me to decide what is moral, what is right, what is good. I would love to be an atheist. You say, I can't believe this guy is saying that. But I can't get past the glory of Jesus. I simply cannot get past when I look at him in the scriptures And See who he is and even if he's only one-tenth of what the disciples describe him as even if 90% of the Gospels is made up and it's not He's still better than anything else this world has to offer He has a great glory now he receives glory from the father He is the only begotten son now Now understand what this means when we read this in relationship to us being given the authority to become the children of God in verse 12. In verse 14, 14, we have seen the glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now how can there be many children, those who receive him are given the authority to be children, and yet there be only one son? Well, again, John is using Roman law to make a very clear theological point. There could only be one son. There could be many accepted children, but the son was the one who received the glory of his father. The son was the one who received all the dignitas, gravitas, all the power, all the senatorial offices, all, of the, all of the things that the father possessed, he passed those to the one son. And the one son jo- son's job then was to care for all of his father's children. There is no Christianity without Jesus being the one. He is the only one capable of being the true son of God that we might be the children of God. Now this is extraordinarily important. You can get a whole lot of theology wrong and still be okay. I know because I've been to seminary for way too long. And I've seen an awful lot of people get a lot of things right, and I've seen a lot of people get a lot of things wrong. And I've seen people that are getting it wrong get it right, and I've seen people who are getting it right get it wrong. But there is one thing you cannot have Christianity without, and that is the complete and utter uniqueness and authority of Jesus as the Son of God. You can mess up a whole lot of stuff, but you cannot get that one wrong. And all you need to do is read the rest of John's writings to see how important he makes that. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, uh, he makes this statement, they went out from among us because they were not of us, because they do not have the truth. And what was the truth that he said? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to be the Savior and mediator for all mankind. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he talks about how you have to test every spirit that speaks in the church. And what's the test? Will the spirit confess Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God? second john chapter nine he says there are those in the church who do not abide he doesn't say do not abide the proper understanding of communion the proper understanding of baptism the right music wearing the right clothes driving the right car worshiping in a church with the right name he says they do not abide the teaching the doctrine of christ 3 John chapter nine, he said those who would bring chaos, a guy named Diotrephes, if he would bring chaos and anarchy into the church, the way he would do it is by refusing the authority of Christ and it being delegated properly in the church. Revelation chapter two, uh, in the letters, Revelation chapter two and chapter three, repeatedly John deals with a group of people called the Nicolaitans. We don't know what we what they mean. They believed in detail, but we have a pretty good idea that they followed a guy named Nicolaus rather than following Jesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 28, there's a prophetess that he calls John and Jesus, and John is recording Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 2, but he just goes ahead and calls this woman that dirty Jezebel. So Jesus had a clear understanding of who she was. He says that she is corrupting them. She is making them to lay with her in her sick bed. In other words, she is causing them to do something as corrupt and disgusting as commit fornication in a bed covered in vomit. Strong words from a strong God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, dealing with the church of Laodicea. He says, you're lukewarm. Your commitment to Christ is just not here or there. It's not, you're trying to live in both worlds. And as a result, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm ashamed of you. Throughout the gospel, John, throughout this gospel, John will compete repeatedly ask. He will he will show Jesus asking people to believe in him because, and the way that he asks that question is always framed in such a way that they have to either choose their own personal agendas or choose Him as the sovereign. Choose Him as Christ. Choose Him as God. Verse 16. From His fullness we receive. Jesus did not save you because you are valuable to Him. God did not save you because you have great worth. And I know this sounds harsh, but it's a reality. Jesus does not, God does not gift you with the gift of the Spirit because He can't wait to see what you're going to do. God is not interested in, Your self-health, your self-love, and your self-improvement. Jesus died for you because that's what Jesus does. He loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And thank God Jesus loves me because of who he is and not because of who I am. Because frankly, I don't know how people love me. And if we're all honest, none of us deserve the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. None of us are worthy. None of us can lay claim to the idea that, man, Jesus was just waiting for me to show up so that he could save me. You are not saved because of who you are. You're saved because of who he is. And Jesus walks through the world in John, and he has constantly challenged people in John's gospel. He is saying, what do you believe in? What are you willing to surrender to follow me? And for some people, it's everything. Let me just use the Samaritan woman for an example jesus goes to the well of sychar in john chapter 4 he's sitting in the well he's hungry his disciples go off to town to try to get some food from the samaritans that they can't stand so i can't even imagine what those conversations sounded like as this group of Galilean jews by the way the only people higher in most jews perception the samaritans were really low the galileans were only slightly higher so you have this case of that kid that's just slightly bigger than the kid everybody's bullying and so he gets to bully him but he's bullied by everybody else and so the disciples are unbearable. I can't even imagine what that conversation is. Jesus is by the well of Sychar. This woman comes along in the middle of the day. That means that she is an unclean woman. We, know, we find out later she's been married a bunch of times. She's living with a guy who is not her husband. Jesus knows all of this. She sees a Jewish man sitting by the well, and she goes, no! Oh, all I want to do is get water and not get harassed by this stupid Jew. I know he's going to drive me nuts. She walks up to the well, and what does Jesus do? He starts talking to her. She hates this idea. You can tell by the way she answers. He goes, "Hey, I could use a drink of water." And she's like, "That's in the Greek. It's subtle, but it's there." <laughs> Jesus keeps talking to her, she, and she's like, "And Jesus goes, he goes, you know, I'm not supposed to talk to you, right?" Like, like you're you're aware of this, right? So could could you cut me a little break? Let's talk about. Let, let's have a conversation. She tries to have a theological conversation. What what on earth was she thinking? She starts having a theological conversation with a Jewish, a hungry Jewish rabbi. Th- this is a terrible idea. All right. So she she tries to have a conversation with him. And he gives her answers she never thought she would hear. She says, oh, we worship at the Mount Gerizim. You guys worship at Mount, uh, at Mount at the Jerusalem and the temple. And see, we're so different. And Jesus goes, you've got it all wrong. He goes, you're going to worship in spirit and truth. He starts to push her, starts to challenge her. starts to talk about the water of life. By the end of the conversation... Having confronted her with her sin, having dealt with all the barriers that she had and torn them down one by one, she's running back to town to grab everybody she can find, probably all of her seven husbands, or however many they are, get get all of them to come and listen to this guy because he knows everything about us. She receives Jesus. As Jesus breaks through the barriers, she just lets him keep coming in. He breaks down the barrier right at the screen door, and she says, okay, you can come into, the, into the, foyer. And then he, she's in the foyer. And by the time it's done, she has received him fully into her life, and she's inviting other people to the party. Then you contrast that with so many people who come to Jesus, and when Jesus challenges them, they just turn away and walk away and get angry and try to kill him and try to deal all of this stuff. The whole point of this is where how deep into your life are you going to receive Jesus? We could do worse than allowing our personal preferences, opinions, biases, quirks, letting them go and letting him in because and i didn't even get to this i might come back to it next week that's where grace and truth come from i just need to learn to be more gracious than you need to let jesus in I need to learn the truth about something. Then you need to let Jesus in. You say, but I'm ashamed of this part of my life. I, 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 I just want it to be forgotten. It can't be forgotten until Jesus is received into it. It can't be redeemed until you let Jesus into that, li- that part of your life. You say, I don't want to deal with that. I, I, I don't want to face that, that, that thing. I don't want to give, and, and it's not even things that we w- we want to hold on to and don't want to give up. It's sometimes there's just parts of our lives that we're not ready to let Jesus into. We 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 just don't want to receive him into that room. It is that one room in everybody's house that you never let guests see, right? For us, it was the sewing room when I was growing up. Now the sewing room was called the sewing room because it had a sewing machine. In it somewhere <laughs> but the reality was that the sewing machine the wa- sewing room was the place where, when guests were coming to our house, it was a little closet off the hallway uh, of our house, I lived in the, the a converted Sunday school wing of a church building when I was growing up i 'm not making this up. My bedroom was actually a classroom that they had stuck wallpaper on. Um, And and there there was this little closet. It was supposed to be a supply closet, but my mom had made it the sewing room, and it was not a very big room. And so what you would do is, if guests were coming, you grabbed everything that was anywhere in the whole house. It didn't matter if it was towels, laundry, dirty or clean, sometimes food, occasionally a pet. You just picked them all up. You opened the door enough shoved them in and then jammed the door closed. I am not make kidding. At one point, my father and I had to take the door off of this room to be able to get the stuff out of it. It was that full of garbage. And that garbage, it was our stuff. We're like, oh! I mean, my mom had a whole whole bolts of cloth in there. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Um, at one point, I, I this cannot be accurate. It cannot be accurate. But as a, ch- I, I remember there being a bandsaw in there. Now that that cannot that cannot be right. I know it's not right. You know how your childhood memories get messed up a little bit. It cannot be accurate, but it tells you how much was in there. Um, that, That room in your life, whatever it is, you need to let Jesus into it. You need to let Jesus into it. You need to receive him into the mess so that he can redeem that mess for the purposes of the gospel. To as many as received him, who believed in his name, he has given the power to become children of God. All of you. All of you, individually, he wants to take all of you and make you more and more a child of God. He is, Jesus is, the son. The one and only son. And he wants nothing more than to care for the children who receive him. It's not because of who you are. It's because of who he is. Through and through, he wants to transform every aspect of our lives. Will you join me in a word of prayer? I'm all too aware that there are always parts of my life that I can cordon off from you God I am all too aware that there are pieces of me sometimes not even aware of it not even conscious of these these pieces until you bring them to light that need to be given over not even submitted not even surrendered but simply open the door and allow you in Receive you as you make us children of God. May you continue your work in us and through us as individuals, as families, as the body, as those who interact with those who do not believe, with those who interact with those in the church that do not believe, in the, in the Christian world. And, Father, let us be your people more and more. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a little chorus, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to remember it, but I guarantee that some of you will be able to help me with it. And it goes like this. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. I love